2: You're a handmaid. I was. That's how they threaten us, if we're fruitful with the red dress and the wings. I don't know how you could give your baby
0: up to somebody else. I'm trying not to.
3: Me. Women are finding their own way of expression through utilizing that costume in their own way. So it's beautiful.
0: Welcome to Eyes on Gilead. Today we're going to be talking about episode three of season two and a special treat we are going to be talking to the costume designer of the Handmaid's Tale series and Crabtree so do stick around for that. And I've got to say we go into quite a lot of detail about each episode on this show so do bear that in mind if you're sensitive to spoilers because we are going to spoil. My name is Fiona Williams and I'm managing editor of SBS Movies and TV Guide here at SBS and I'm joined by my colleagues Sana Kadar and Natalie Hambly. Hello. Hello.
2: Hi. I am a journalist at Small Business Secrets. My name is Sana and I am loving the series so far.
1: I'm Natalie and I am the managing editor of SBS Life and absolutely agree, 100%. And uh, we've just watched
0: episode three of season two, and I don't know about you guys, but I need to debrief, and maybe I need a little bit of a hug, yeah. and possibly a drink. <laughs> it yes.
2: started off really uplifting with yeah. the music and the running, and I was like, okay, things are happening, things are changing. It sure as hell did not end that way.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes. Actually, this episode was like the reprieve that I think that we needed after episodes one and two, and I had this sort of line which I thought... No uh, Handmaid was harmed in the making of this episode. <laughs> and, and I really needed that. And we also had a reprieve from Aunt Lydia. She was barely in this. Yeah, yeah it was oh, a flashback yeah. of yeah. her. Yeah, it wasn't. And yeah. as much as I love, hate that character and I think the actress is amazing, I also was very glad to not see her much this episode. It was yeah. a nice
2: break. But I found what was interesting in the sort of opening sequence when she's running through um, love that. the Boston Globe uh, offices at night. Her voiceover says, my mother says it's incredible what women can adapt to. And June is very much sort of looks like she's adapted to living in what she formerly described as a slaughterhouse. Yeah. So mm-hmm.
1: remarkable indeed what well, she has can been adapt to. two months. That's like, right. I wasn't yeah. really surprised. I was like, wow, two months has gone by. And um, I absolutely loved that sort of training, opening scenes of her running around the printing area. Up the stairs, down the stairs. She's got like trainers on, and I thought, yes, she's gearing up for a fight. This is exactly what I want to see.
0: I think she was taking a leaf out of what you suggested last yeah. week in the episode. <laughs> she it was you heard me. Thank you.
1: Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, she's got some
0: time on her hands, so now she's squaring for <laughs> a fight. Although I always
2: wonder where where is she getting food? Where <laughs> where how's she eating? And I living think delivery in?
0: man was bringing it. He mentioned <laughs> right, um, okay. not dropping off this time. So yeah, that I thought I thought that uh, exactly. Uh, that's same that's thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Two months, and she's got a baby on the way. Um. Yeah. So yeah, So. Just a quick recap of episode three. So June has spent two months hiding out in the former offices of the Boston Globe working on a cardio and uh, reading (laughs) old newspapers around the office to build a timeline of Gilead to sort of get a sense of how we got here in the hope that maybe how we get out of this. Um, But then she's on the move again and uh, things do not go to plan. Her safe house is declared unsafe so she can't go there and she relies on the kindness of a couple of strangers in a bid to try and make a plane a little puddle jumper, as they call it, uh, to get over the border to Canada. But as she prepares to leave, and there's a lot of waiting around in this episode for her, she uh, June recalls the relationship with her own mother and the mutual disappointments in each other, and that dredges up the guilt that she herself is feeling about getting out and mm-hmm. leaving her own little daughter Hannah mm-hmm. somewhere out there in big old bad Gilead. So it uh, doesn't end on a great
1: moment. <laughs> it's quite <laughs> it's, suspenseful. It is quite suspenseful. I think it's quite clever, though, because I think we sort of... There's a tendency, I think, to open up these episodes and feel a bit of dread about what's coming. But the way they've ended this one, you really want to watch the next one. Like it really has sort of amped up that anticipation of, is she going to be okay? What's going to happen next? Which I think is quite clever. I think the series needs that actually.
0: Yeah, oh, it's great. Yeah, it ends on a cliffhanger so it's, mm. yeah.
1: It's
2: <laughs> also been really nice to sort of get more glimpses of how Luke and Maura's life is proceeding mm-hmm. over in Toronto and there's a, sort of a real casualness and closeness to their interactions at the apartment. Who, by the way, is the other roommate? Do we know? Who is that,
0: that one girl? She was introduced, I think it was the last episode of season one, okay. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but well she forgotten. hasn't said anything and then she has one line. Yes.
3: <laughs> Bless it be the Fruit Loops. But here we get a
0: sense of how Moira is coping, or rather not coping, yeah. with being out, but haunted by what happened. And I what thought she's it was interesting through. that she was at a club
1: because that was what her job was back in Jezebel. Gilead. Yeah, oh, yeah, was yeah. and using in the club. name, using the yes. name Ruby. And yeah. she was using Ruby. Yes, I thought, oh, oh she gosh, hasn't, I completely missed that. That's yeah. right, she hasn't left that behind. Yeah. So it's been two months, and and clearly they are getting on with life to a certain extent. In Canada, but we don't know quite how well they're going. But yeah, there's still all those like shades of history there for her. Mm. So yeah, I am curious. I do like, I hope we get to see a little bit more of them every week. Same.
0: Um, I didn't think it was a, it was more of a snapshot of Moira's mm, life and it was mm. a bit of a shortcut at first she's she's working in the um, Asylum Seeker Centre as well, welcoming yes. new, new arrivals and recommending them to the therapist upstairs and you get the sense she's not made use of those services because she's putting yes. on a brave face yeah. and she's laughing at home and and going for a run as well, simultaneously to June, running around Boston Globe, Moira's running around Canada. Um not the whole country.
3: <laughs> Actually, she's <laughs> walking around
2: Allen Gardens in Toronto, where I spent many a skipped class during university. <laughs> oh really? Fantastic. Yeah, I, I noticed that landmark. But
0: thank you, local knowledge, help kit. <laughs> um, and uh, but clearly, she's just not coping all that well. You know, she has a hookup in the bathroom at the club, but it's, exactly, she you know, it's not reciprocated.
1: So uh, you she, know what I did like enjoy about um, at the moment. when she saw that refugee and was helping him. We actually finally got a sense of what life is like for the men of Gilead. Mm. Yeah. Um, Because really, like season one is really all about what happens to the handmaids and we don't really find out what happens to the rest of society. And we finally have got a bit of a glimpse of what it's like to be a man in that world. And the guy that she was helping, he said that um, he got turned into a, a guardian, which was Kind of their version of the army and having mm. to enforce violence, really. And he was traumatized by it. And I thought, ah, oh, so that's what's happened to some of the men. And he was a gay men. man as well. And then had yeah. to yes. hang
2: his, you know, college sort of boyfriend uh, on the wall, which is yeah. which is awful. And actually, I really liked how that scene was filmed because the camera sort of stayed on Mora and mm. her reaction while he was, you know, saying his story, and the way she flinches as he talks was just so. It was it was interesting to see. Mora and how she's experiencing that story of horror because she's of course been through
1: her own horror. Yeah, I think the other thing we saw in this episode is the life that June could have had. Yes, um, ah, which yeah. was the what do they call them? The Econo uh, people, which is just so yeah. weird, right? Why?
2: why yeah, <laughs> I mean
1: that comes from the book, but I don't know what that's <laughs> like. It's not flattering, is it? <laughs> no one wants to be that. But I think I'm assuming that's what the life for her would have been like if she hadn't tried to escape with her daughter. Yeah, Yeah. and she
2: remarks it like uh, about that in her voiceover. She says, "Oh, so this is where I could have ended up if I was an adulteress, if I had played my cards right, if I had Mm -hmm. known I had cards to play, Mm. which was kind of really scary."
1: And what a depressing life, though. You know, like it's not really a great option either. Look, they're all bad options. And I certainly don't kind of want to rank them from best to worst because they're all <laughs> awful. But it was a very it's a very drab life. Like she entered into the home of one of the men who was helping rescue her. And you sort of really get the the feeling that that no one feels safe there. They feel like they're watched all the time. And the family leaves the house to go to church, but it's they're only going because they have to mm. for performance reasons. Yeah. And what I found
2: interesting was the wife, that Connor wife kind of sort of shits on June a bit and judges her for being in a position she never chose. And it sort of comes after we see the flashback scenes of June and her mother where her mother is sort of shitting on her life choices as well. (laughs) So I'm like, June just can't win in any corner of her life, really. She
0: really can't. And it does show the the paranoia and the insecurity and the fear within women who are able to give birth to children that, got you know, God, we might be roped into being handmaids and, and just the risk of that and just the judgment that comes with that too.
1: I actually thought it was a sign of how little information is getting out there because that woman was very judgmental and sort of mean to June in a way that I thought I don't think she understands the horrors that they are undergoing. She seems to think that June has a choice. Like she says to her that, I just can't imagine having to give up my baby. I think I would die first. And I thought, do you do you realise they're getting their eyes plucked out and they're getting like maimed and tortured? Yeah, and it's like, not a voluntary. Yeah, petition. if you knew what they were going through, I don't think that you could treat them like that. And so I'm thinking, is this but equally,
0: who's talking about it?
1: Yeah, because so, they have no free press. We know that. Yeah. you know. So I think and maybe, maybe we they saw don't in, know.
0: In series one, where the presentation when the The Mexican dignitaries were coming over Mm. and and June had to play the good handmaid and and make presentations. So, you you know, imagine all the press is, we're doing this for for country, love of country.
2: That's actually interesting because um, the guy who sort of picked her up from that shed full of signs and eventually took her back to his place, on the way, you know, as he was about to rescue her, his phone buzzed and he said, oh no, the safe house isn't safe. Mm. And I thought, ah, a phone. Why are there not more contraband phones flying around here? because in a couple of flashbacks, we've seen June handling an iPhone. So clearly this is sort of a contemporary near future setting that we're in. And in social media, obviously the book was written far before social media became a thing. But it just I thought, hang on it, actually, if this was um, perhaps a more real representation of mm. the current era in which we live, Social media would be a thing, helping Gilead both sort of keep track of who's done what and get information on people, but then also helping people who've escaped perhaps contact their loved ones. And, but any, anyways, they, they haven't clearly sort of explored shot that, that region. Down.
1: I totally agree and I think um, really they've sort of missed a great chance because for the last two months, June and Nick could have been sexting the whole time.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that would be great (laughs) to watch. (laughs)
0: Um, And just to place it in a timeline as well, I mean we had the Friends episode last week to to suggest a a level of time and an iPhone Um, and this week – in a flashback, June mentions that she wanted to marry Jordan Catalano from uh, My So-Called Life. So that sort of places her age a little bit. Which be...
2: I have to say, placing my age, I had to Google. I was like, who's, who's oh, that? I, yeah, I'm actually not sure <laughs> either.
0: I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry my it? age here. I was, yeah, that was Jared Leto's character in, um, in oh, My So-Called Life. Yes, I've since realised. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, of course, in the middle of this episode is June's relationship with her own mother yes. um, mm. and how much that informs her and the woman that she became and what she owes to her mother, the... Complicated relationship they have that she has to reconcile if she hopes to mm-hmm. get her head
1: straight in this in this crazy world. I felt so bad for her because her mother, like in this episode, she which was a flashback before June was about to get married to Luke, and. Um, mm. And her mother was so disapproving of her life choices. She disapproved of the job she had, which, like, she was really rude about. <laughs> um, and Being she, editors,
0: also, she you know called that yes. you're basically looking at other people's work for typos. Yes. <laughs> I <was> like,
1: Wait <laughs> that's a, it in the worst that, light that's possible. a bit reductive. <laughs> uh, okay, mum,
0: thanks. Well, her mother, you know, was an abortion doctor and like a supercharged. Mm-hmm. Agitator and activist in the community. Um, Which I
2: think is a return to a storyline from the book as well.
0: Yeah, I believe so. I didn't finish
2: I'm, it I'm, i it. Mean. I'm sort of actually reading it now, but only halfway through. <laughs> so slowly getting there.
0: <laughs> can't rush these things. Um, and when we see her take June as a child to a, um, a ceremonial burning of the names of rapists, mm. uh, so that was a supercharged moment. And her mother's friends are unimpressed with June's career until. It's mentioned that she did a blog for... What
1: was the website that she did?
0: I don't know. There's something that impresses them.
1: But basically like her mother (laughs) is such a feminist activist that I don't think June could ever meet up to her expectations. Yeah. But I think it adds a layer of guilt for June because when she's going back, she says like, my mother saw this. She knew knew this was coming and her mother was annoyed with her for not protesting enough, for not fighting enough and for just having this nice life. But it despite a her fight, to get married. we
2: still find out sort of what happened to her mother in we a do. flashback and we see her photo flash up mm-hmm. and she's in the colonies. In the colonies. And so, you know, her feminist fight hasn't worked out very well for her either which just
1: leaves june with so much guilt you know now she's seeing like her daughter's been taken away her mother's in the colonies her mother warned her of this years ago and june didn't do anything about it i don't know how the girl
2: keeps going Well, i just think that's
1: such a testament to her mother because even though her mother doesn't realize that her daughter is an activist june clearly is like she is such a strong character she has not given up she hasn't been broken or beaten emotionally I mean you know she's still she's still rather than running off to her room and crying she's actually frequently angry and defiant you know so. Although there
2: was also a line at some point um Again, I think from the man who picked her up and took her to his home, and um, eventually, where he says, "We're all either brave or stupid," and mm. I thought that is such a perfect summary mm-hmm. of how June actually acts in this episode because yeah. she, even when she's in the safe in the house safe, she's peeking out the window. Oh my and
0: god, that drives me crazy! And holding marbles, and I thought, Oh god, yes. a marble's going to drop on the floor.
2: And, and and when she's on the train, sort of when yes. she's left the house, she's whipping out her map of Massachusetts yeah. Yeah. with the girl neck behind her looking. Well, we out. made like, these moments doing? of drama
0: though. What are you yeah. doing? This is stupid. <laughs> A brave. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But in that house where there is a knock on the door and it's oh God, time's up but yeah. um she races under the bed and finds yes. a prayer mat and, and a Quran. And a Quran, yeah. And-, and she smiles and pulls out the prayer mat and it's sort of like, Ah, oh, even here where they seem to be So under the eye, you know, there's still these little moments of resistance and holding on to something that used to be. Yeah, that was totally unexpected. And with June, even at the start where she has to spend two months in the office here, she's using her time wisely and keeping her mind active by going... She's in a newspaper headquarters, so she's going back over the old copies of the newspaper to piece together a timeline of Gilead. And you see, you know, she's cut things out. She's got the wall going under subheads Mm. of, um, you know, she's listening to old dictaphone tapes of interviews just to try and understand how this happened. When they
2: were close up on it and one read another night of protests and another one read we're doing this for your protection, which I thought isn't that the most perfect sort of parallel to when, whenever there's a terrorism, whenever there's a terrorist event and sort of um, privacy and all those issues sort of come up with monitoring of social media and electronics and all that kind of
0: thing. Mm -hmm. Even on a smaller scale sort of in in health legislation and whatnot you know for for your own benefit and things can be framed that way so that people might be more amenable to to a
1: change. But what I really loved this sequence because I think if there was a message for the viewers in this episode I think that's where it was which was June's going back and she's now looking at all the signs they missed. So she's going back through all the old articles to see Hints of the Gilead to come, which she which she clearly missed because she wasn't an activist at the time.
0: Her mum saw it.
1: But her mum saw it, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. If there's a message here. It's like, listen to the feminists, you know? exactly. <laughs> they know. yeah, and the points that she's
0: framing them under, she's cutting out old articles and putting them under subheads of curtailing of civil rights, power structure, militarisation. so she's just looking at all the little clues that that got her to where she is.
1: And can I just say on that point, Is that with having Handmaid's Tale swirling around my head this week, it has actually changed the way that I'm seeing the news as well. I feel Mm. like I'm seeing Handmaid's references coming up all over the place, and not just like actual literal references, but also just stories which don't mention the show at all, but are a little bit disturbing. And I think it's kind of a good exercise um, if anyone's in the mood for it is to just pay attention to the news next week and just have a look at what you're actually seeing and sort of think about what are the signs that are out there because I think they are out there. What are the signs that are out there that we are possibly missing? You sure. Know, yeah. Share and them with us on Twitter.
0: <laughs> yeah. Find um, us. And they were out there 30 years ago when the book was written and and I think with what Margaret Atwood has done so well is, you know, people do say oh, it's so outlandish some of the things they do but most of them have roots in history whether it's mm-hmm. medieval history or, you know, Third Reich or current day. There's Absolutely. Yeah, or... Events in in third world countries, it, there is an element of truth,
2: which is what makes it so effectively scary, so
0: eerie, yeah, and it, and it mm-hmm. can be so real. Well, even you know, with these episodes that have taken place in a newspaper headquarters, and this week we did see the White House Correspondence Dinner, which is the big precedent yes. in Washington, and there was that enormous kerfuffle over the comedy routine of Michelle Wolf speaking truth to power and just and calling the journalists as well on, mm-hmm. yeah, enabled Trump, so that you know that was you've
2: enabled this dystopia exactly,
0: <laughs> and yes, she referenced. Uh, the smoky eyeshadow, but she said a lot more too, and it's a great routine if you want
1: to go on that. Uh, I actually that screamed up. when she referenced Aunt Lydia. Yes, I yes. actually <laughs> yes, did. It yes. was great. Because what a burn! Like that yeah. is such an insult, isn't it? <laughs> you do not it? want
0: to
3: be Aunt Lydia. No. You don't want to be Aunt Lydia. And of course we have Sarah Huckabee Sanders. We are graced with Sarah's presence tonight. I have to say I'm a little starstruck. I love you as Aunt Lydia in the Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> Mike Pence, if you haven't seen it, you would love it.
0: So one other thing we saw this week when uh, June was spending time with the O'Connor people hiding out in uh, in the house there, a new wardrobe slash uniform slash what? <laughs> Mood? <laughs> <It's-> <laughs> yes, well, Shades of Grey. Yeah. Um, yeah. The identifying outfit of the O'Connor people.
2: Very, very drab, very bland, very economic.
0: <laughs> and I think that... When when June does don the robes of the wife and is out in the street, you know, she, mm-hmm. it's an invisibility shield really because she's terrified at first and just sort of watching and and scanning to see if anyone notices her, and then she realizes actually no one's looking at me because I'm just in this nothing yeah. outfit and I'm just going about my daily life as a noble citizen of uh, of Gilead.
2: Yeah, like the costumes really denote who in the world has importance. Because even the handmaids, while they have a very terrible position they occupy, they're in those striking red robes that can't be missed. Yeah. And the wives are in their sort of beautiful blue robes. But the Marthas and, and in sort of the aunts as well, they're all very drab looking in, in what they wear. And the Econo people sort of fall into that landscape. They're, yeah. they're sort of nothing people in a way
0: almost. In the hierarchy. And I do enjoy towards the end here when June does get to her pilot, he says, well, where's your robes? Prove you're a handmaid. Mm -hmm. And thinking that somehow Mm -hmm. she's escaped across Gilead in her identifying red flowing robes.
1: It's exactly (laughs) the same. Come on. (laughs) Yeah, come on, buddy.
0: (laughs) There's a scar on my ear that we'll have to do. (laughs) Um, Speaking of the costumes of The Handmaid's Tale, I was lucky enough to speak to Anne Crabtree, the costume designer of the series, to talk about just what it's like to design these outfits that actually do identify Your characters, So, uh, yeah, she's fantastic. So let's have a listen to that. Anne Crabtree, thank you so much for joining us on Eyes on Gilead.
3: Oh, hey, how's it going? Oh,
0: very well. Thanks for
3: having me. I mean,
0: clothes are always important in, in a project, but here, you know, in the world of Gilead where the clothes define you, what was the guiding principle in, in creating the looks for, for the show?
3: For season one and season two, uh, I look first to Margaret Atwood's beautiful novel, because that's what inspired me uh, as a young lady. That's why I took the job, and it is the beautiful construct from which all stories and costumes come. So that's the first place. And then from there, you know, there's tons of research, obviously from historical clothing, but also I look to nature and paintings that inspire certain environments and even, you know, current clothing and industrial clothing for Gilead. All of those seem to come up all the time with every new section or storyline.
0: Perhaps maybe if we go through some of the defining characters in the show, say, let's start with The Handmaids, obviously that that iconic look of the robe and the red dresses. Um, Can we talk about that? And obviously there was strong source material, but how did you interpret that and how did you make it your own here?
3: How I did that was, you know, I was also a huge fan of the original film. Uh, Mm -hmm. Daniel Wilson was the producer, and both he and Margaret Atwood are producers on our show. So I, I looked at that footage again, I read the book again, and then I had to put it aside because I am and was such a huge fan. It kind of was stopping me in my tracks, you know? It's like performance anxiety, (laughs) wanting to make sure that uh, it was as good as every version that has gone before. I think that's a hard one because there's been so many interpretations of the book and also the handmaids themselves. So after struggling with that, uh, I put it aside. And really, it was also to to get further into the scripts and not get them confused with the novel, which is quite easy to do Mm -hmm. as You know, we tend to do sort of two and three episodes at a time uh, in terms of preparation. So with the Handmaids, it was looking at as early as the 1700s and moving into 1990s Prada. And what I found was that if I looked at every decade, I would stop along the way at the beginning of every decade because each decade brought very, very clean, purist ideas and lines. And that's what I was looking for. When I met Bruce Miller and Warren Littlefield, our biggest impetus for the series was to find a way to translate these very abstract red robes and white bonnets or wings into a world that looks modern and feels like everyday clothing. And that's It wasn't very easy (laughs) to translate, but I I think the way to do that, or in my mind, the way to do that was to really investigate the beginnings of every decade and what stayed throughout that decade. It was a really long process, and usually the simplest way was the way in, the lines of clothing that stayed throughout all time, right? And that impetus was also... I mean, maybe slightly egotistical, it was, how do I make this show last so it doesn't also inform people that it's just 2016 or 2017? Mm-hmm. I didn't know, but I had a feeling that we were going to be mirroring a lot of what was happening in society and in politics. And we just wanted it to be a modern story. So all of those things combined led to what you see on the screen.
0: Sure. Sure. And equally, there's an importance of, like, they do serve a function in the world of Gilead as well. That They're lived-in clothes and, you know, the shoes don't have shoelaces, for instance, for a very real and distressing reason.
3: It's basically prison garb. You know, it's a beautiful, uh, intense colour, but those are uniforms for people that are in prison. So... There's that dark side of the beautiful image that it gives cinematically, you know?
0: Yeah. And then I guess that leads, of course, to the, to the wives and uh, and the look, that, especially for Serena, how she pulls that off. You know, that impeccable tailoring and, you know, it's so frustrating that regimes and authoritarian regimes always have such impeccable tailoring in their, in their <laughs> uniforms. Isn't
3: that funny? Yeah. I agree. I agree. It's story related because, you know, we always... Well, I always said that everything had to make sense on screen. We had to really understand that people have their clothes made in a factory except for the 1% that's running things, right? So anybody that's a commander or a wife, they got their fabric woven for them. They have their own personal tailor. So those tiny details, I really wanted to infer on the screen that they are higher up in a sense, well, not in a sense, they are higher up and their clothing should reflect that, that kind of higher class via tailoring and things being fitted and, you know, that that equals power in a lot of ways. And what's beautiful is when you go all the way like that, then you're able to take that character's power away via the clothing as well, mm-hmm. which is what happened later on in season one, yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I guess the middle, Sorry.
3: No, I was just thinking about Yvonne being from Australia and how cool it is that you're from Australia and we're talking about her, that's all. Yeah, it's a nice <laughs> girl. So, yeah. Um, she such a great job.
0: Mm, yeah, she does, doesn't she? Yeah. And the middle ground, you know, the, the villain who keeps them in their in their place, the aunts, especially
3: yeah. dear
0: old Aunt Lydia, <laughs> that look. <laughs> Can we talk about what, what was that the thinking looks... in there? Yeah, that's, that's a, quite a look.
3: Sure. Quite a look because it is the kind of middle ground where women, the handmaids, and, uh, well, really the handmaids mostly, are being governed by another woman, right? There's not a man right next to them. Mm. It's the ants. And then beyond the ants, it's the guardians who are keeping the handmaids in line. So I wanted a very frightening, subtle though, a subtle, frightening uniform that would equal the military without taking away the power of the guardians and the eyes who are quite military. They come straight from the military. So how to keep the ants at a lower level because they're women, but still give them power visually when they're alone with the handmaids. And so that fabric actually, I did a lot of research into the military um, and even fashion versions of, which you can find a lot of, especially from, you know, the beginnings of war until now, like beautifully cut military uniforms. Mm. That costume came from this kind of British brown, it's called British tan, but it's really a brown Mm -hmm. military fabric from Scotland. And then we found out season two, that it's actually being used at the moment in Canada for their military uniforms, which I didn't know Mm. (laughs) the exact fabric, uh, funny. And certainly Margaret Atwood, when she was an aunt in season one, she got it right away when she was getting dressed. She said, ah, Hitler, right. you know, <laughs> when she was putting on her, her um, uniform as an aunt, her costume. So it does have its roots there via the color and perhaps the shoulders. But beyond that, believe it or not, it was a way to make them uber-religious but also a feminist. So the feminist part came from the TV show Maud, right. um, which I grew up with. Sure me too. <laughs> Beatrice <laughs> Arthur yep. was one of my favorites growing up and her turtleneck and her really long vest flowing into the room. Yeah. You know, I never quite understood it, but I liked it as a kid, mm-hmm. as a young lady. So I kind of threw that into their costume and then gave them two little secrets for good and for evil in their clothing, in their costume. One is a hidden pocket for their kettle prods, which they mm-hmm. use to harm uh, the handmaids and keep them in line. And the other is a kind of female genitalia. If you look at their chest up and the collar around it, it creates a, a woman's genitalia. And that was a kind of Fu to the patriarchy, yeah. you know. <laughs> How to empower the women, uh, even though they're being horrible to other women. Yeah, you know, it's sort of hope for a turnaround in the story. I yeah,
0: guess. Sure. So <laughs> a little bit like Daniel Day Lewis in Phantom Thread, with the with the notes in the fabric. You've had little little details in the in the oh, um, in the creation. Yeah, <laughs> interesting.
3: That's right. Yeah. And of
0: course the costumes themselves have tipped over into real world settings and um, the handmaids in particular, they're a powerful symbol of of protest. What's that like, sort of seeing um, your interpretation of the handmaid outfit being used in in real world settings?
3: It is unlike anything I've ever experienced in the most beautiful ways. It's surprising and it humbles me and it is. Something that I was hired to do as a costume designer for a particular story that I was quite inspired by, by Margaret Atwood, for that to be used in the story to subjugate women and to have women turn that around and use it for protest for their voices personally and collectively is such a an incredibly beautiful outcome, one that I would have never, ever expected. I don't think anybody did, mm. but I would be lying if I said it wasn't incredibly amazing at each time I see that happen. I'm so proud. And I'm also smart enough to know that it's not all me. You know, this has taken on a life of its own and women are finding their own way of expression through utilizing that costume in their own way. So it's beautiful. And you know, I was maybe a seed <laughs> planted, but I'm not the whole plant. There are so many offshoots.
0: Sure, right? so. the credit where credit's due, of yeah. course. <laughs> That's it.
3: Thank yeah. you.
0: And on the flip side, I mean, I don't know if you saw in the in the news, and I know this had absolutely nothing to do with the show, but. I have to ask you, that lingerie line of sexy handmaids inspired knickers that made headlines last week? What did you make no, of that? No, my friend, my
3: friend who did the first couple episodes, Mark White is the production designer and one of my dearest best friends, and he texted me and said, WTF, you know, <laughs> like, what is going on? And yep. I, I've just been busy, so yep. I haven't investigated, yep. but it's in- funny so crazy and uh the answer is I don't know (laughs) I haven't looked at it yet it it seems wrong uh, on the surface maybe it's a an inside joke and I'll I'll know that when I read it you know but it's funny
0: yeah you could not get more (laughs) removed from the underwear in the show (laughs) (laughs) and of course now we're in season two and there's already a much more of a connection to the real world and you know now June is out what challenges does that pose for you you know she's very ceremoniously burned the robe,
3: yeah, that was cool, yeah. that was uh very phoenix like and um beautifully empowering uh, visually you know it was it was time right in the story mm. it's time to to start a new chapter, and the easiest way to do that is to ceremoniously burn everything that you knew prior <laughs> yeah. It's a religious moment, on, a spiritual religious moment on screen. So, listen, it, it opened up so many different worlds and to- so many different stories, and it just made me excited for what was to come. It was painful, I'm not going to lie, because it takes forever to make, you know, that whole costume is hours and hours and hours. I mean, just the the wings alone takes hours. and days actually weeks and so uh that was painful uh you know but I had to get over that because the story is remarkable so it's um it's thrilling it's it's freedom for your lead and and what may come and the journey that she embarks is at the beginning of a new season I mean what could be better than that you know yeah so I loved it I loved it I think we were all sort of worried about how we were going to up the ante uh, season two and the end of season one was left on such a question that I think we all were sort of crossing our fingers all, all summer and um, praying for the best
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah.
3: so hopefully we got there we'll see yeah
0: yeah for sure um, well look we are here for it and um, thank you so much it's such a thrill to talk to you because I'm a I'm oh. close nut anyway but in this show particularly yeah honestly it's a real thrill
3: uh, oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. It never gets old to hear, yeah. <laughs> so I really I thank you.
0: <laughs> thank you so much for your time.
3: All right, take
0: care. Bye 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 bye.
1: Well I kinda say that if we are interviewing people from the Handmaid's Tale, can we just put in a request for Max Max Mangella? Mangella? <laughs> I did Please. a little bit of a deep dive on him last week because I couldn't help myself. Um, Are you joining
2: me in the. Madison yeah, I am <laughs> totally
1: there with you. I was relieved to find out that he's actually 32. He looks so young, I thought he better not still be in college. But 32, <laughs> thank you. Um, actually, his dad is quite famous. Oh, yes, Anthony yeah, Mangella. Anthony Mengele, mm. yeah, who um, wrote and directed The English Patient. Mm.
2: His sister also works in sort of the film industry. Yeah.
1: Like he's coming from like a multi-Oscar winning household. So he's got some acting chops behind him. Um, <laughs> what I did find funny, I saw an interview with him. First thing is that um, he calls Elizabeth Moss Lizzie. Lizzie. Well, that's how <laughs> so she Lizzie, signs yeah. off on just, all of her Instagrams and the rest too. It just feels so wrong. In my mind, she's Ms Moss. <laughs> Elizabeth.
0: <laughs> Elizabeth. Um, well, she's taken over the uh, Instagram account For of Hulu. the Handmates Hulu Over the past Ah, week, which has got some great behind the scenes, especially of the uh, iconic singlet and the blood streaks.
2: Yeah, yep. Aftermath of
0: cutting off the ear.
2: So, what's going to happen next, guys?
0: Oh, boy, cliffhanger. Of course,
2: it was too good to be true. She couldn't really be leaving to freedom quite yet, could she? Yeah,
0: well, we do have another 10 episodes to go. And I'm surprised more people, (laughs) we
2: haven't actually seen more people die in this episode that helped her. Because every time someone was coming to help her, I was like, oh, this nice man's about to get it. Mm. And the pilot Mm. obviously does, but. Yeah.
0: And you mentioned, Natalie, seeing men fleeing Gilead. Mm. We also saw a driver who was on his way out as well, who Mm -hmm. shared the plane with, with June. Yeah.
1: Yeah, what is she like going? what is gonna happen next? And I think my fear is that I really don't want her to end up back at the commander's house. But I kind of feel like she sort of has to, otherwise mm-hmm. we don't see them again yeah. and we need to see them again. So but in my in my dreams, the next episode will open with Nick arriving and um taking out all those three guards and whisking her off to safety, but you know. The show's not done yet. Well, I
0: also thought um, Luke's first line in this episode was that there's military exercises along the border. So I'm thinking hopefully, maybe, I know it's not them because they shot the pilot. These are Gilead guards that came in there at the end. But, you know, maybe they're close enough to the border that there might be some...
2: And he remarks it's like 1775 again. uh, And I was like, what happened in 1775? I sort of... I went to Google that because I was like, that's not when the White House was burnt down. My North American history needs some refreshing. And that's actually when the American Revolution mm. first started and kicked off and the rebellion sort of started in Massachusetts. So that's what he was referring to when it's 1775 again. Yeah, Thanks, mm. Google. <laughs> but I was going to say, as, as the plane's about to take off and, and the camera's sort of on her as she's sort of saying her voiceover about letting go of Hannah mm. um, and hoping, you know, having done the best she yeah. could, and she's sort of making peace at that decision as she's about to take off. It kind of reminded me of the first episode when she's about to be hung. And again, the camera's on her. As she's tearing up and yeah. making peace with the end of her life. And both times it's sort of, oh, hang on. That's not what's happening. Mm-hmm. Tricked you. Mm-hmm. It's so
0: painful it's to watch. It's a coaster. It really yeah. is. And the music as well, the way it triggers things in mm-hmm. you and, and how it just sounds like moaning sometimes and it, it like just it's yeah. i would like it's to be the music director it really is yeah. yeah and the nick theme as well that the nick music comes in you know usually when they're about to get it on but um or <laughs> oh, i, I, I tell not a musical
2: yeah. theme i actually yeah. hadn't noticed that no, at all <laughs>
0: <laughs> quickly learn up spotify <laughs> um but and then i realized it comes in here but nick's not there and it's sort of like i guess it's the theme of when something there's an opportunity or something going askew and it's not quite on the the path of Gilead, it's, something, it's a little something to the side and oh. it's here when she takes the path off in her grey outfit and is running randomly um, just trying to, rec- you know, she's she wants to woods. go but yeah, the guilt is kicking in. Oh, she's and, flashing
2: back to losing Hannah in the woods. Yeah, and
0: it's quite a remarkable difference to the running she was doing at the start of the episode where yeah. it was very directed yeah. and yeah. pure cardio, here it's, ugh, Am I going or am I not? What's going yeah. on? So, um, yeah, that theme kicked in then. Which I think that, that she thing.
1: actually is torn. I can't, yeah. She doesn't really know whether she wants to leave or not. And I think that's really hard because once you leave the country, you're leaving your daughter behind. Where are you best positioned to save her? Are you better off being in the country or out of the country? So... As she was leaving, I don't think that she was quite at peace with that decision, though she was trying Mm. to get there. Struggling to make Um, peace. Yeah, so now I'm very nervous about what's going to happen. Yeah, well,
0: I mean, if she's captured, ordinarily she might go to the colonies, but she is a pregnant handmaid. Exactly, she has it on her side. I don't think
1: that's her fate quite
2: yet. She does have
1: (laughs) the option because those guys were killing pretty quickly and they weren't taking a lot of time to interrogate and I thought they could just shoot her very, very fast before they even realise that she's pregnant. So I wonder whether she'll have to show her belly to save herself. She has the option of not saving herself, which mm-hmm. is what that Ocono wife was getting towards. I wouldn't be able to give up my baby. I would rather die first. Mm-hmm. And I thought yeah. the episode has ended with her having that choice of how is she going to handle this. Anyway, it's all a bit much. (laughs) It It always
0: is. (laughs) Well, thanks for letting us talk this through. Uh, We hope this helped you as much as it's helped us. We're going to be doing this every week, every time a new episode drops at SBS and SBS On Demand, every Thursday. And after handmade screens on SBS Thursday nights, we're also premiering a new drama called Next of Kin, which stars Archie Punjabi, who you may know from The Good Wife or Bend It Like Beckham, as a woman dealing with her radicalised nephew in London. That's also available at SBS On Demand. Thanks for your response to this show. We're, we're loving hearing um, yes. your responses to yeah. it. Tweet us, uh, yeah, feel free. Us. And uh, do feel free to leave a review and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts from. We, we love to see what you think. You might also like some other SBS podcasts we do. There's a, a weekly recap of The Good Fight, The Good Fight podcast hosted by Dan Barrett and Sarah Malik, and our weekly movies and TV podcast, The Playlist, hosted by myself and my colleague Nick Basine. For more on The Handmaid's Tale, you can head to SBS Guide where we've got episode recaps and full coverage. And if you'd like to follow us
1: on social media, you can find me on Twitter at anythingbutfifi.
2: I'm on Twitter as well at Sana underscore Kadar, Q-A-D-A-R.
1: And I'm on Twitter as at Natalie Hambly. And our producer is Dan Barrett and at audio on mixing by
0: Jeremy Wilmot. Thanks for listening. You don't own- Are you brave or stupid?
3: I'm not brave, so...
0: And until next time, don't let the bastards grind you down.